This is episode 141 of the Stem Cell Podcast, iPSC-derived myogenic progenitors with Dr. Rita Perlingero. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Longtime listeners may have noticed that we got a new song in the intro, trying to mix things up. Got something coming in the outro too. Let us know what you think on Twitter and Facebook at, at stemcellpodcast.com. You can also go there to find links to all the papers discussed in each episode. Also, a number of other top papers being published each week. Today, we have Dr. Rita Perlingero from the University of Minnesota on the podcast to talk about her research on the mechanisms and translatable applications of lineage-specific differentiation of pluripotent stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first... We'd like to remind our listeners about muscle cell news. You know, it's heating up. I'm going to get to the beach soon, work on my muscles so I don't look so flimsy. But uh, you can get up with the news, the muscle cell news, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Muscle cell news summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in muscle cell research, and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. So save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News. Subscribe for free at www.musclecellnews.com. All right, we're going to start the roundup today with CAR-T therapy. That's a blood story. I love blood, of course. I've told you a million times. But I also love this therapy that's taking the world by storm. You've heard of it by now, of course. It's like the miracle cure for these really tough-to-beat cancers, harnesses the immune system to knock them out. But, you know, one of the downsides of CAR-T therapy is that there's the associated cytokine release syndrome, which in, you know, there's been many, many trials, over 10 trials the last five years. And it's a pretty common side effect in, you know, as low as 10% percent been reported, but as high as 100%, everybody being treated. Um, will suffer from uh, cytokine release syndrome, as well as neurotoxicity, which is, you know, either reported at zero or up to 40%. And these can also lead to significant treatment-related deaths. There's been a lot of deaths. I mean, granted, these people are on death's door anyway. But, you know, it, it gives you pause when you're uh, applying a therapy that can have these, uh, you know, associated consequences. So, of course... We want to we wanna mitigate that. You, this chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, the CAR-T, causes this severe cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicity, toxicity, and it kind of scales with however many sales, cells you put in. If you infuse a lot of cells, which gives you a good chance to knock out that cancer, you usually get a lot of CRS and neurotoxicity. Um, and this is based on the actual molecule that they use, the CAR molecule that uh, they're using there. So to, to try and generate a CAR-T therapy that um, had a less CRS, Jun Zhu and Si Yi Chen, Jun Zhu is at Peking University um, Cancer Hospital, and Si Yi Chen's at the Keck School of Medicine over there in California. Uh, and to, to improve and mitigate the CRS and neurotoxicity, they used this structure prediction program called FRI2, 
to get a whole panel of different variants on this CAR-T molecule that you use, and they identified one that had a potentially reduced ability to, to elicit this cytokine response, and they showed in, in vitro and in vivo that despite reduced cytokine production, they still maintain this potent cytolytic activity against the tumor cells that were targeted. But this is where it gets really big, is because th this is a, a phase one trial. They did a phase one trial of this improved CAR-T therapy in 25 patients that had B-cell lymphoma. And they kind of scaled it. So uh, six of the patients had a low dose, eight of them had the intermediate dose, and uh, 11 of them had the high dose. And out of the 11 that had the high dose, six of them had a complete response, okay? They complete remission, still in remission. That's over 50%. And there were also good responses in the medium and the, and the low-dose group, you know, some with a, a, a response, some with little to no response, but, you know, comparative, comparable to the existing therapeutic thresholds that we've been getting with CAR-T therapy. The important thing is zero, zero out of the 25 had the uh, cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity. So this is, you know, they're going to make a lot, of, a, a lot of difference here. They're going to make a lot of money. They're going to make a lot of lives uh, that were, you know, in, in the dumps. They're going to change a lot of lives with this new therapy. It uses this new molecule uh, to produce a potent, and durable here, durable, important. These, these people are still walking around. Anti-lymphoma response without causing the associated neurotoxicity or CRS. Home run. Ah, moving on. You know, the, the, uh, the thing with these therapies in the future, this CAR-T, not quite moving on. Let's stay with that for a second. Is that, is that you want to be able to get like an off-the-shelf product with this. That you can, if you could make a hematopoietic stem cell that would self-renew. This is a segue. If we could self-renew the hematopoietic stem cell, then we could get an off-the-shelf CAR-T product that could really change a lot of lives at scale. Um, and that's what uh, our dear friend, Paul Fournette, is doing. He, he was on the show a few episodes ago, and he told us about this study that was about to come out, and now it's out. It's in Nature Cell Biology, and this is based on this idea of hematopoietic stem cell self-renewal. They're notoriously difficult to maintain in culture and maintain self-renewal. And it's thought, you know, th there's all these different niche factors. So the, the hematopoietic stem cell niche is critical for maintaining self-renewal, right? Yeah, of course. And the niche components, as we talked about with Dr. Frenette at length, it's, you know, heterogeneous. It's polyfactorial. There's a lot of inputs there in the niche that are instructing these hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, right? And it's comprised of the bone marrow endothelium, the stromal cells, all different stuff. The problem is when you take that niche out of the bone marrow, it no longer is the niche. It, it, with sustained culture, the ability of these ex vivo niche transpositions to maintain self-renewal, they decline. And, of course, it makes sense, you know? Two-dimensional cell culture, it's not the bone marrow. We know that. But the question is, what is the, what governs that loss of the niche factors, okay? And so Dr. Frenette and his group at Einstein, Albert Einstein College, Medical College, uh, in the Boogie Down Bronx up there near me, they wanted to get at this. So they took this, the bone marrow uh, niche cell, 
the bone marrow perivascular stromal cell that is a nesting GFP positive cell. They looked at the nest in GFP positive population versus a ne negative fraction, the non-instrumental bone marrow cells, and they looked com compared them to each other to see what was different. So what were the niche factors? But then importantly, they cultured the positive cells in vitro for a while until they lost the ability to maintain self-renewal. That whole self-renewal machinery in the niche cells was depleted. And they compared those to the fresh ones and the, non, the fresh non-instrumental cells, right? And so from that, doing RNA-seq to look for uh, transcriptional regulators here. And this is the key because, you know, they shoot out the secreted factors and the membrane-bound ligands. That's what tells the hematopoietic stem cells to self-renew or differentiate, of course. But the hypothesis here was that the expression of all those membrane secreted factors they're governed by a kind of master regulators, transcriptional machinery that dictates the, that self-renewing niche identity, right? So the RNA-seq, looking for these transcriptional regulators, they found 40 potential candidates that were upregulated, right? They whittled that down to 28 genes by looking at which of those genes actually were reduced as you got... Uh, the extended culture of these cells, okay? So they got 28 genes and put all those 28 Yamanaka nearing style into the uh, lentivirus. So they these 28 lentiviral factors. They dumped them on some cells that had been depleted and then uh, generated single-cell clones that were able to then restore, that had restored this niche capability, Right? So they dumped all of them on and, and got these different colonies. And then they got, because they were single-cell clones, they had the actual integration of the lentiviral input there directly into the genome. So they sequenced that. They found, by PCR found, which lentiviral factors were integrated. And they found four specific genes, OSTF1, XBP1, IRF3, and IRF7 that were virally integrated into most of the clones, all right? And ultimately, that was their recipe. They find that these four factors alone could revitalize these mesenchymal stromal cells, the bone marrow niche cells, uh, so that they could enhance the uh, synthesis of all the niche factors. And when you grew hematopoietic stem progenitor cells on there, they showed higher repopulation capacity, and they could protect against lethal irradiation in recipient mice. So there you go. This master regulators, four factors. It's, you know, it's a recipe for a practical application to revitalize the niche, but also gives you insight into the transcriptional regulation of the niche. And that's going to have a lot of implications for stem cell-based therapy. Remember, hematopoietic stem cells are in the clinic. They are the most widely used cell-based therapy. So this is something that uh, is, is really going to be impactful and resonate across the clinical landscape. And another thing that resonates anytime I open a nature journal, I look for the Hans Kleber's article. I just talked about some kind of oids that he had, which probably last episode or two ago. It's every episode, Hans Kleber's, you know? Hans Kleber's, Hans Kleber's this, Hans Kleber's that. Well, here's some Hans Klebers for your nature medicine. Again, he's at a Hubrecht Institute that's in the Netherlands, and he's doing organoids. What else is new? He loves organoids. This one is another revolution for medicine right now, uh, and this is reflecting the fact that in the past 
10 years or so, it's become pretty clear that ovarian cancer is a heterogeneous disease consisting of a wide spectrum of all different entities, okay? There's uh, the, generally speaking, broadly, you can divide the ovarian neoplasms into three main groups. There's borderline tumors, which are non-carcinoma, and then there's type 1 and type 2 carcinomas. And within those main groups, there's all different types of, you know, subtypes of malignancy, all right? And in, in this age where we're really treating each individual patient, not the cancer, broadly speaking, we have to really figure out the, the cancer that each patient has and then treat that. It's a big deal, right? We got to know. We got to understand the primary. And the problem with existing approaches to that, so there's tumor cell lines, right, or, or xenografts. You could take the primary tumor, put it in a mouse, and those are, those are commonly used to study ovarian cancer. Human ovarian cancer is a mild system there. But it has a lot of drawbacks, right? So it's hard to establish a new cell line. It takes a long while. And ultimately, that long while, if it works, in most cases, it results in cell lines that, that are like really selected in the extreme. So and when you have these selection of the a cellular clonal type or multiple clones, you lose all the the molecular heterogeneity, all the all the you know the copy number variations, the distinct mutations within the heterogeneous tumor, and and the difference with of different cancers within the same patient. Okay, because one one of the tumor subtypes just dominates, right? And xenografts uh, are pretty good at at the 3D environment, right? They become invested with all the stroma and the blood vessels. Um, but it's expensive, right? You got to get them in mice and maintain them with serial passaging to other mice. And they're, because of the general nature of the system, it's not well suited to like the large-scale drug screening that is popular nowadays. Or you can't really manipulate them. You can't do all the kind of genetic manipulations. It's also quite popular these days with the CRISPR. Also, because they're in a mouse, they kind of evolve to suit that mouse. You're getting a human cancer in a mouse, which is why it's taken so long to make strides with cancer, because we're only curing it in mice. Anyway, we need some new ways to come at this ovarian cancer thing, all right? We need a new platform. You know, in steps Mr. Clevers, Dr. Clevers, I should say, uh, with the organoids. Organoid cultures, are, they're better, right, in many ways, because, one, they can be clonally established from single cells, directly from the tumor tissue, so you can study tumor heterogeneity within the same patient, right? And you can rapidly, instead of doing the long process signs, you go right to assay, phenotype, genotype correlation, drug sensitivity. Also, you can, like, test a little preview about what kind of chemo the t tumors can respond to, right? Boom, everything is there, everything. Organoids are everything. So what they've done is they have derived long-term ovarian cancer organoids that correspond to the border tumors, borderline tumors, as well as the low-grade serous, mucinous, endometrioid, clear cell, and high-grade serous carcinoma. Okay, so all those different types of the things, they, they find made an organoid for everyone.
And these organoids, they recapitulated the histological and genomic features of the per pertinent lesion from which they were derived. So, like, this, one lesion from a patient make an organoid, a different lesion make another organoid, and those different organoids reflect each of those unique lesions. So that's big in terms of in, intra as well as interpatient heterogeneity. They were also able to genetically modify these guys. They used them for drug screening assays to capture different um, tumor subtype responses to the platinum chemo, which is the gold standard for, for treating ovarian cancer, including the fact that some of these subtypes could acquire chemo resistance. So it's like a sneak preview. Is this thing going to acquire chemo resistance? So we need to come and be ready for some next level stuff? Yep. All right. Let's go to it. Let's anticipate that chemo resistance. And of course, finally, they could xenograft these uh, organoids so that they could do like in vivo drug sensitivity assay. So it's everything you could ever want from an experimental system effortlessly generated by Hans Clevers and his group at the Hubrecht. Not surprising, but very illuminating. And now we're going to move into the genre that is really, uh, that Rita made famous. We're going to talk about a couple stories that just came out in Cell Stem Cell about muscle stem cells, and they're kind of related. Okay, the first one I'm going to talk about came from Andrew Brack at the Eli and Edith Broad Center. Uh, also uh, in California. That's at UCSF, though. So this is about um, muscle stem cell, right? Satellite cells, okay? Uh, but first, I mean, we should just say that it's, it's becoming appreciated that, that, you know, we always think of these stem cells, you know, big S, big C, stem cell. But, and each organ has their own big S, big C stem cell. Right? But the, the stem cell compartments in each organ, it's becoming clear are really heterogeneous. They're composed of molecularly and functionally distinct subsets. And of course, the gold standard approach for figuring out the, the potentially cells lineage tracing, right? You determine the origin contribution of one cell type to tissue development, maintenance, and repair. And we've done that. Now, Rita's done that. She's used the classic methodologies um, from her, you know, coming up in the blood. She's kind of applied that same lineage tracing approach in the muscle system and exploited this to, to molecularly dissect uh, muscle stem cells, satellite cells. Okay, so lineage tracing, these gold standard studies in satellite cells shows that PAC7 positive cells, they're the cell of origin for muscle generation and replenishment of the stem cell pool. But satellite cells are functionally and molecularly heterogeneous, okay? It's, people know that by the kind of label retention studies. They'll look at the classic long-term or short-term label retaining assays to see what cells are being mobilized and what cells are just, you know, quiescent. And within the satellite stem cell, within that PAC-7 satellite cell population, you get both types. You get the, the quick actors and you get these creepers, right? And in, in other stem cell compartments, such as, you know, in hematopoietic, Stem cells, there's different pools of stem cells that are deployed depending on, like, what kind of injury you have or whether you're, like, you know, resting or active, quiescent, whatever. There's different pools that are activated. And also in, in intestinal stem cells, so one, I, there wasn't enough time to report it, but there's a great story in nature you guys should take a look at looking at 
single-cell transcriptomes in the regenerating intestines. Out of all you Canadians, you're getting repped well by Rana and Grigoriev labs who uh, made that story. Check that out. But this is, you know, the intestine. That's an aside, but it kind of touches on the same thing we're going to talk about here. In the intestine, there's, it's known that there's two populations of stem cells. There's a rap- rapidly dividing subset and then this, this dormant population, okay, um, this reserve stem cell population. And the reserve steps in when the more active and abundant population kind of gets damaged or wiped out. The reserve steps in. So the, the, functional, the presence of this functionally distinct reserve population has been shown, um, and it's been hinted at in the muscle cell, but the, the molecular definition of that reserve population in, in the muscle system has not been described until Dr. Brack and his peeps looked at it. They looked at, at this system and found a minor subset of the PAC-7 positive population. And this, it was, they, the way they found it, it was marked by this MX1 Cree mouse. So once the, the MX Cree turned on, you could get this irreversible marking of cells. And that was the subset. That subset within the PAX-7 population, it was enriched for PAX-3. Okay, and critically, it has reduced reactive oxygen species levels, all right? And uh, these cells have potent stem cell activity on transplantation, but they, they only minimally contribute to the endogenous repair, that steady state. But uh, there's a dramatic, dramatic uh, expansion, a clonal expansion of these cells upon uh, selective pressure, radiation stress in this case, uh, and it allows extensive contribution to the muscle repair and uh, the repopulation of those kind of steady-state actors. All right, so this is identifying a subpopulation here that is the reserve and showing that PAX-3 in this reserve is instrumental by increasing uh, or by decreasing the reactive oxygen species content in there, which allows them to kind of have a long-term retention in the face of, of the minor stress of the steady state activation. All right, so that was the first story in the, in the muscle world that came out of st- cell stem cell. And then there was a complementary article, no coincidence, it came out of Inserm France. This is Marion Gervais and uh, Frédéric Rela. However you say that, I, I'm, I'm sorry. R-E-L-A-I-X, Dr. That. Come on the show and correct my pronunciation, please. In this story, they kind of, they didn't piggyback. I'm sure this is independent, but the idea of piggybacks on that by really focusing on the specific environmental stress, okay? And this is much more, not much more, but this is very relevant to your every day, okay? Because like we said, normal homeostatic conditions, the muscle stem cells are in quiescent state, and they all express this PAC-7, right? This satellite cell marker. But they're, as we just talked about, they're mobilized in the face of these environmental stress. And, and despite the fact that pollutants we just take it for granted as a fact of modern life the real nitty-gritty impact of those pollutants on adult stem cells it's not well understood we know that the environmental stress and all that stuff is bad and it causes cancer or whatever but like the molecular way that that happens we don't know we just don't know and in particular the the this one pollutant 
tetrachlorodibenzopedioxin. All right, TCDD. It's the most toxic and ubiquitous persistent organic pollutant that humans are exposed to daily. And because it's soluble in lipids, it leads to bioaccumulation in adipose tissue. So not so good. Um, and what, what Gervais and Relais did here is they, they looked at the influence of this specific environmental toxin, this ubiquitous toxin, looking at what the effect is on the muscle, uh, satellite cell population. And they also zeroed in on this subset of cells, this PAX3 positive subset uh, of cells that responds to this environmental toxin in response. Um, and it's resistant to that. And with the, when you systematically treat this, the, the mouse with this TCDD, the, the PAX3 negative, so the non-reserve population, they kind of die off. They can't survive. They have this atypical activation. And they, don't, they don't differentiate correctly. Um, whereas the PAX3 positives, they stand up. Uh, they're sensitized to this environmental stress. And critically, it's uh, PAX3, so on the molecular mechanistic level here, they add to this whole idea by showing that PAX3 induces mTOR C1, and that's uh, instrumental to the protection. So th it shows that there's this functional heterogeneity in responding to environmental stress that's dependent on PAX3, and furthermore, is dependent on PAX3's activation on mTOR. So... You know, it may be a good candidate for uh, pharmacologic targeting in the face of this world where we're surrounded by environmental stress. We're going to talk a little bit about environmental stress, professional stress, all kinds of stress, with Dr. Perlingero in just a few moments, ladies and gentlemen. But first, I want to ask you a specific question. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? I mean, we're talking about these skeletal muscle progenitor cells. Do you work with them? Are you, do you want to work with them now that we're talking about them? Have you gained an interest? Well, the stem cell human myocult workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish. allows you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using mouse myocult expansion medium. So get after it. You want to build some muscles for the beach season? Don't inject them, okay? I'm not saying you should put anything in your body, people. Don't do anything stupid. But if you want to grow them and explore the possibilities, you should learn more at www.stemcell.com slash myocult. Stemcell.com slash M-Y-O-C-U-L-T. All right, guys, today we have on the interview portion uh, Dr. Rita Perlingero, who is the eponymous Lillehay Professor in Stem Cell and Regenerative Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lillehay Heart Institute. Um, Dr. Rita Perlingero's lab is interested in understanding the molecular mechanisms controlling lineage-specific differentiation of pluripotent stem cells and applying this information to generate tissue-specific stem and progenitor cells endowed with in vivo regenerative potential. Much of her work is focused on muscular dystrophies, but I'm hoping we're going to talk a little bit about her roots in the blood. Dr. Perlingero, please, uh, thank you for uh, being on the show. Welcome. 
Thank you, Dylan. Thank you so much for the invitation. You know, as a scientist, we are always excited to talk about our stories, right? So it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Oh, yeah, the pleasure is mine. I'm very excited. Why don't we start by uh, you just giving me a kind of overview of your research focus there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have been, um, well, I have been in the field of pluripotent stem cells since my postdoc of George Daly. Um, and my lab took several turns over the years, but you know, very early on, um, as I was an independent investigator, I started on the skeletal muscle field, from the blood, as you mentioned, to, to skeletal muscle. Um, and as we have been working in this area, we really like to use, uh, we think as pluripotent stem cells as a tool uh, to investigate the different aspects. So we have several projects in the lab. Of course, one of the um, major interest is the regenerative aspect, so generating um, functional or cells from pluripotent stem cells have highly regenerative potential in, in disease models, in animal models of muscular dystrophy. Um, understanding more um, the, the, the nature of these cells regenerated in the dish and what they are really capable of doing, trying to understand as much as possible using animal models, knowing that if you are going to a patient, uh, the situation will be not quite the same. Um, so we, you, we have projects with gene editing from patient-specific iPS cells. So this is a, a huge uh, interest from the lab. And there are also projects focused on using pluripotent stem cells as a tool for disease modeling, again, with patient-specific iPS cells. And also another area um, using the cells uh, to study early stages of development, uh, which allows really to do a number of uh, refined, uh, use a, a number of refined technologies that's quite difficult to do with embryos because of the difficulties of obtaining such a, a big amount of material from early embryos. So we uh, we are very interested in that aspect as well. And then out of muscle, um, then we have, we still have a little, uh, my foot a little bit in the blood. Uh, we're still interested in, in the function of the role of endogland. Um, this is an area that we started more in blood specification and evolved in understanding the function in the adult hematopoietic stem cells and we are now in the leukemia. So it's quite a path over the years, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sometimes I wonder if I have attention deficit. So. <laughs> well, but what can you do if the research is interesting, yeah, right? Well, I think you're like most of the people I talk to on this show who operate at the highest level. They, they go where the science takes them and you've run the gamut development to disease, but we're going to step back a little bit and get basic here on the muscle side. We'll start with the muscle. Um, what, you know, skeletal muscle, what, what kind of muscle, what's the range? Very basic, sorry for reviewing uh, to the audience too much. You probably already know this, but review for us like basically what are the, what are the types of muscle and what distinguishes a skeletal muscle? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, the muscles um, are... Um, Basically, they take most of the body, right? Our bodies is, we have muscles all through the body and we have fast twitch and slow twitch muscles. So basically it's the different type of myofiber we have. Um, and so, so in terms of function, basically that's kind of a major difference. We classify uh, skeletal muscles. They are um, voluntary. 
um, not all of them. Uh, and, um, and also in terms of development, they are different. So most of the skeletal muscles of the body are derived from the somites, um, except for mo most muscles of the head and you have a different um, origin. Um, and the transcription factors that are initiated uh, muscle specification are different if the myogenesis is coming from the somites or from those uh, different type of paraxial mesoderm. Um, so it's quite interesting regulation, but in the end of the day, uh, independent of the transcription factors, whether it's uh, PAX3 or um, TBX, uh, they are going to activate the myogenic regulatory program, which are the famous determination genes, MyoD, MI5, MR4, and those then you have the cascade, the hierarchy of activation of the myogenic program. Okay, so there's, a, there's muscles in terms of like stem cells. There's a pool of stem cells, like there's a stem cells for most, uh, you know, the, the, the organ-specific cell types that is constantly replenishing the uh, skeletal muscle cells in the body. And, and, and is the disease like muscular dystrophy, is it, or other dystrophic kind of conditions, is it uh, disease of the stem cell that they can't renew, or is it that fundamentally all the muscle cells right out of the gate have a kind of molecular uh, or debilitated on the molecular level? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So, yeah, so the muscle, uh, many years ago, it just anatomy was identified that actually there is a, a muscle stem cell called the satellite cell, uh, and it responds as in any other tissue, responds to the injury to, to becomes activated, is normally quiescent, sitting in the, under the basal lamina of the myofiber, and in the presence of injury or a muscle wasting disease like muscular dystrophies, they become activated and and generate a myoblast and they fuse and you have the, the multinucleated myotubes, the myofiber, and there you go. Um, so muscular dystrophies are a very heterogeneous um, group of disorders that are more than 50. So most of them, um, it's really affecting the myofiber. Uh, but doesn't mean that in some of these diseases there is a, a component in the satellite cell. So the the most studied, the Shane muscular dystrophy, is caused by lack of dystrophin. It's really um, a structural protein, so it's very is much more uh, not really related to the satellite cell, but actually the myofiber. Every time the muscle contracts, uh, it's not stable, and there is leakage of calcium and um, apoptosis. So many muscular dystrophies uh, are more due to structural genes or enzymes in the myofiber, which leads to regeneration. And the satellite cells then, as you would expect, they become activated. So there is a lot of regeneration, but because the outcome is dysfunctional, right? It's missing dystrophin or some other protein. Uh, the process of degeneration, regeneration is um, doesn't stop. It goes on for a long, long time, and eventually, uh, this process, uh, the the regeneration succumbs. You don't have newly formed myofiber. The tissue becomes uh, fibrotic, fat deposition, because all this degeneration, regeneration attracts more and more inflammatory cells, and you know, um, the the system or the satellite cells cannot really keep up with the level of degeneration, and then the whole environment becomes. Um, sicker and sicker mm -hmm. and is that i mean so you alluded to i think your research focus 
of course, there's a lot of just fundamental development, but like most scientists, uh, I think ultimately it all converges on therapy, right? What are the avenues of, of therapy for uh, muscular dystrophy? And I know there's all these different types, so is there different mm -hmm. approaches that are maybe more apt to, to one type of dystrophy versus another? And are mm -hmm. cell-based mm -hmm. cell therapies, where do those play in? Mm -hmm. So up to, you know, um, let's say one year ago, uh, what I would hear from the patients or even from my colleagues, neurologists, is that when the patients come to the clinic, they just, you know, okay, this is your diagnosis, be a limb girdle of Duchenne. Um, and then you just keep coming once a year to just see when you're going to need a wheelchair. Um, you know, so pretty much the the treatment is palliative, right? So anti-inflammatories, because that seems to minimize or uh, extend um, uh, lifespan or quality of life from the patients, antifibrotic. Uh, but in terms of really therapy, um, the two major avenues, or I would say the major avenue at this, mo at this point is gene therapy. Uh, there are strategies. Uh, trying to deliver uh, smaller versions of dystrophin in the case of Duchenne. Um, and there are some uh, approaches with exon skipping that is not, again, it's a small group or a limited, not every patient with Duchenne muscular dystrophy uh, that is specific for a certain a group of mutation, a certain area of the gene. Uh, but, um, and then cell therapies. Uh, so gene and cell therapy would be the way to really replace diseased muscle with healthy muscle, right? In the terms of gene therapy, replacing dystrophin or whatever gene is mutated with cells. The, the beauty of cells is that you would, uh, if it's the right cell population, right? You would be able to provide healthy muscle and also uh, healthy satellite cells, which would provide um, functional regeneration over time because that's always a question right we get in the field so how many injections we're going to need do you need it to do it multiple times mm. right and i think the key for or the beauty if we are able to um, to sustain what you see from a mouse to a patient the, what you really want to see is functional tissue but also the stem cells uh, being replenished in that muscle because then you are really guaranteeing for the long term because you know you're not going to be able for an injection uh, to replace the whole muscle right so mm -hmm. you you have to count on the cells uh, that they're going to be working over time and in a way they're going to be competing with the resident satellite cells right so we are hoping that they will win the fight of the recipients that are just making sick myofibers anyway Right. I, I just back to the to the gene therapy approach. I'd always heard that gene therapy in muscle is is really you, has a unique component because they're the syncytia and and they there's not a lot of cell division. And it's a good mm -hmm. vector, you know, that whatever mm -hmm. adeno or whatever you shoot in there, it can mm -hmm. live in the muscle and just constantly shoot out whatever gene product. In, in the gene therapies for like Duchenne or whatever you were talking about there with the smaller dystrophin, are you targeting those syncytia, like the actual myofiber, or are you targeting the satellite stem cell population? That would be that's the goal. <laughs> so in the syncytia, in the muscle, you know, the data is very, um, very beautiful. Uh, they use AV and different versions of uh, AV vectors. Um, and the results look good, and that's why I think you know it's really moving. And and that, I think I didn't complete actually the answer from my, 
the, your previous question. So, you know, a couple of years ago, the patients say there are no clinical trials that, you know, we have one or two uh, therapeutic options. And now, you know, if you talk to the clinicians or the patients, it's a very exciting time because there are a, a couple of options in pipeline that, you know, we don't know what's going to be the outcome, but, you know, there are clinical trials and that, and that's very exciting. For the for this patient population, which for a long time we were just like just wait and see what's going to be a progression, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the question of the satellite cell is still questionable. Some, you know, people are still trying, investigators are still trying to optimize, you know, in terms of uh, how of um, efficient is targeting targeting mm -hmm. the satellite cell uh, because that's that's again the outcome the, the uh, optimal outcome uh, studies in, in mice you know there is some evidence that you can target but we have to see it in the in the really long term how about I mean you know these days everything Chris for this Chris for that is it is it uh, amenable at all to the kind of actual gene correction approach as opposed to these kind of you know, adeno where it's it's not mm -hmm. really integrative or re reparative. Right. Is that is it? Would it make sense for dystrophies, or it's it doesn't really? No, it does. It. it does, and there are a number of uh, studies in the last few years showing the proof of principle um, of this strategy. Again, th there comes that question, you know, uh, whether you are able to target the satellite cell. Uh, but there are some studies, or at least one study. Um, that show there was targeting of the satellite cell using this strategy. So I think we just have to see uh, more, but um, it's it's encouraging. Mm. One and of the the question is really the safety, right? But I think as we evolve in this field, we just have to 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 learn and improve the the testing and looking for off targets and and all that. Right. Yeah. The um. Ba I mean, back to the cells. Now, you have this very recent study in, in the muscle field, in the muscle half of your lab, or third or quartile of your lab, or whatever you have devoted mm -hmm. to the muscle. Um, <clears throat> with uh, the PNAS study you just had, which I thought was interesting because unlike, I think a lot of, uh, pluripotent stem cell derived cell types, I think a, a lot of the, the the barrier for um, other organs has been that you get this fetal signature that doesn't it's immature and it's mm -hmm. difficult to reconcile the fetal immature phenotype and function with the adult organ whereas in this penis study you just had it, it was the reverse i thought that was really interesting will you kind of tell us about that so that i don't get it wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so we can you know that has been um a finding from almost all lineages, right, that the cells you generate in the dish are, you know, kind of prenatal, right, and kind of not surprising. And the way we came into this story was um, kind of in a, you know, in the backward way, if you if you will, because as we started this, this, um, this research many years ago, right away we started with transplantation, right, when I was still at UTSL Western Medical Center. And and we started doing engraftment and looking at function and the cells seem to integrate, well, they seem to integrate because you saw, we observe improvement in, in contractility. Well, if the cells are contracting, they must be somehow um, in a more, you know, mature state. So we actually just assumed so, but you know, this was always in the back of my mind. We really should analyze <laughs> this uh, this molecular signature, right? So it took us a while uh, because you really want to compare 
we have done some studies early on, just our cells in vitro versus satellite cells. And you thought, well, if you just look at this comparison, we are not really having a whole um, uh, 360 overview of uh, what these cells really look like, right? So you went back and really compared to different development stages. So we look at uh, um, embryos and looking, so this work was done all with mouse progenitors because it was the way for us to look at different time points in the in the mouse embryo. So you look at E10.5 using uh, E14.5 neonate and adult using specific reporters uh, for each time point. Um, Me5 for prenatal and PAC7 for postnatal. And, you know, surprise that somehow I guess I still had the, you know, hope that, um, or illusion, let's say, right, mm. that the cells would be um, not as embryonic, you know, as they were. But, you know, as most of the cell preparations you generate in the dish from pluripotent stem cells, they really um, cluster. Uh, in the principal component analysis of embryonic myoblasts, really almost, you know, I wouldn't say identical, but really together, especially when you put in comparison with a neonate and an adult, they were quite distant and, uh, you know, some similarities with fetal. Um, so we are like, you know, in a way, while this is what, you know, seems to be the a common finding in the literature, but we were surprised because they indeed have a, um, a very significant regenerative potential because they not only uh, engraft and generate myofibers, but we also see they seed the satellite cell pool up, up on transplantation, and they are there for the long term. So it's like, okay, so then we went... Um, so, well, maybe this is a characteristic that embryonic myoblasts have, right? And we are just saying the cells um, are superior, but they might just be the same. Uh, so we did perform transplantation studies with our usual uh, strategy, 300,000 cells. Uh, in this case, we want to just do a clear comparison. We injured, the, we use a, a mouse model for the Shen muscular dystrophy, immunodeficient, so we didn't have to worry about immunosuppression. So just to have a clean um, recipient. Um, and we transplant the same number of uh, primary embryonic myoblasts, fetal myoblasts, and our cells. And the data was very clear that the cells uh, generated from pluripotent stem cells have a, a much higher uh, regenerative potential than primary uh, fetal and embryonic myoblasts. The same for satellite cell pool. Uh, very few cells were donor derived from the primary cells, but the cell, you know, we just basically confirmed the data we knew already that the cells have. Um, high regenerative potential, we just didn't know compared. And it was, um, so it was a, a, a question, it's like, so what happened, right? So if they are so similar in terms of molecular signature, why do they behave so differently, right? So what happens to the cells once you transplant? We know they are, you know, kind of a different cell population in terms of, you know, they are generated in the dish and they're coming from a cell with, uh, you know, much broader potential than um, myoblasts. Um, so we re-isolated, we had, because they seed the satellite cell pool, we were able to re-isolate the mononuclear fraction uh, by fax, and we performed tercryptome analysis again. And this time we just compared to satellite cells. And you wanna know how they look like, we were able with bioinformatic assistance, we were able to look it back and how this profile 
changed compared to what we have in vitro. And uh, the data was striking as, you know, they didn't become adults, they didn't become satellite cells, but they definitely had a very um, uh, striking difference in their molecular signature. They really shift from prenatal, which was very obvious in the cells generated in vitro, to a postnatal uh, molecular signature. Really, they were now grouping the principal component analysis in between satellite cells and neonatal satellite cells. And then we confirm many of the signaling pathways that uh, changed from in vitro to in vivo. So, I mean, what, I, I don't know, this is the tough question. I'm sure you're already dedicated to this line of inquiry, but how, you know, venture a guess or give me a preview of your next paper. What accounts for this unique ability for embryonic muscle progenitors to, or ES-derived muscle progenitors to, to kind of fast forward? Do you have any idea? Is it like a transcriptional, poised kind of bivalence, mm -hmm. epigenetics? Mm -hmm. where, where, where are you starting to look? Mm -hmm. I really look in the environment right now because um, it just seems to be indeed. You know, you can look in that the, in the the you can look at both sides, right? The cells. What what what's the why do they have this capacity to adapt to the, to the environment? What while the primary cells don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we are really looking at the moment uh, is really trying to understand what changed from what what was the signature in vitro to what what when they were engrafted in the adult, and trying to understand the pathways that are important for that change. Um, and we are also interested in looking why these cells um, are able to change according to the environment, right? While um, prime embryonic myoblasts or fetal myoblasts can. So hopefully I'll be very busy in the next couple of years and I'll have an answer for this question. But there are a number of uh, interesting um, clues to follow. Hmm. Right. Um... Well, at the end of the day, I feel that uh, the, the, the end game here is transplanting a cellular population that's functional, and you're halfway there. W one of the interesting uh, studies you had uh, was getting uh, muscle progenitors from teratoma, which I remember, I think we talked about that on the show when it came mm -hmm. out, and I uh, I remember when reporting it that there were going to be a lot, a lot of people that might use use the teratoma derivative there to create you know you know whatever teratoma yeah. classically has all the different cell types, um, but the 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 muscle in that teratoma is as functional or are other cells in the teratoma do you think have equivalent function as the muscle cells as you were saying kind of the environment maybe mm -hmm. dictating the, the unique functional capacity mm -hmm. of these cells. But I, I was interested after, after reading that study, however the, the optics of it may look, the teratoma may be a great place to get all kinds of cell types, no? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you think that, that uh, what, what are you doing with that uh, idea of the teratoma? Because I mean, if those are function, is that, isn't that good enough? Isn't that gonna be the most mature cell? Well, it's, you know, you, you got a good point. It's the same idea of the environment, right? Because if you isolate through the teratoma, you generated those cells that are uh, muscle-specified. And then if you isolate those, those are able to function properly um, 
in a secondary transplant, well, in a proper muscle transplant. So um, I think that's a very interesting, you know, question, and it might be that, you know, what are the signals? I think in theory, as you said, you know, any cell type could be, or any lineage that you are interested, you could investigate it through the teratoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, formation, right? If you know what you are re-isolating, right? You have to have the good markers again in this area. I think having a good markers, knowing what you are interested uh, with cell population and, and tease out the cells you, you want is key. Um, I have to say that particular study, I was a, a co-author, a collaborator, uh, not really my major area uh, of investigation. So, um, Whatever my collaborator need will help them with that. But I think where they are in this in this project is really trying to see if they can uh, get similar results with human pluripotent stem cells. Mm. So I think that is the you know mm. the big pursuit right now because that would be relevant, right? Oh yeah, highly relevant. I think actually yeah. this may be apocryphal, so I I, I don't want to pin pin my. Uh, career to it, but I think uh, while I was talking, about it, I think another group has used teratoma as a vector for uh, making more functional hematopoietic cells. So mm-hmm. Your other mm-hmm. interests. So it seems like uh, uh, you, you and your collaborators aren't the only one. But that's a good segue. I wanted to talk about your collaborator, your longtime collaborator on that front, uh, Michael Kaiba, who I gather from your productivity uh, together is perhaps more than just a professional collaborator. Is that would that be overstepping? No, that's correct. <laughs> so yeah, I, I assume this is your your life partner as well. And what's right. that like? You know, I I have a wife who does something uh, very different, um, and it's not even she has a lot of great interest in science. But I I it's difficult for me to to talk about my work with mm-hmm. other people because I'm deathly afraid of putting them to sleep. And you know, I love my wife. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want her to be interested in me. So yeah, I kind of yeah. refrain from talking about science, but with, uh, you know, a home collaborator, so to speak, um, how does that affect, I would think it's like great for your productivity. Um, perhaps it's great for you must have brilliant conversations, but you know, I guess there's some, there's some part of me that finds a refuge, uh, in at home away from science and maybe you aren't afforded the same privilege tell tell us upside downside of having a spouse who is really your partner in the lab as well as at home mm-hmm. yeah no i mean it's an adventure <laughs> so the good the good side is really um that we can have uh, each other's feedback right perspective that can be in anywhere right from research you know sometimes you know you're just so focused or so into a particular uh, question that you're actually not thinking broadly enough and you just you know mention it it's like oh did you try you know this particular experiment it's like yeah that that's great brilliant as you said so we kind of uh, help each other a lot on that and sometimes you know not necessarily science but perspective in the career overall right uh, different issues that we might come sometimes you're upset and you know the the your spouse comes and gives you a, a different perspective you know um, we try to calm each other down hmm. <laughs> and also of course you know keep uh, you know motivating each other right sometimes it's like oh i don't know if i'll be able to do this grand deadline you know i'm it's very tight i say oh you can do it i said mm. okay and then you know of course it happens right so um uh, we we stimulate each other 
um, a lot. And that's always good. And, you know, if one is uh, very stressed out, we know it. We know how it feels. We know the, the pressure, right? So uh, the the negative is if you both are under pressure at the same time. Mm. So that can be, you know, the same that May, uh, June 5th deadline doesn't work <laughs> yeah. very well. <laughs> I was thinking you guys need to stagger your R01 applications, I guess. We used to do that. <laughs> and these days, you know, we are just going for all the deadlines right. because, you know, that's... But, you know, um, one way of... Uh, you know, at least, you know, leaving work behind, um, because we all need to do that sometimes, right, is having teenagers in the house. Mm. So, you know, if you start talking, they make it clear that it's dinner time, and please leave packs three and X four behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. The kids actually have to regulate you nerding yeah. out at the dinner table. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, they, they turn us down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, that's great. You guys had actually, I think your roots, you may have met at the MIT. So this is my opportunity to circle back to hematopoiesis, my, my first spurned love, because oh. it, it burned me. Um, uh, so, I mean, I know you still have a major interest in hematopoiesis, and I, I don't want to go too deep on all your studies, but could you just give, give an idea? I know every every career evolves, and you're following the questions, but it seems like the kind of you you went when you started your independent career your big impact um seems to me i may be wrong on this was in the in the uh muscle stem cell field uh what drove that the shift it seems like a dramatic shift from where i'm standing to from the blood to uh the muscle yeah, so that's an interesting, I have an interesting answer for you. Uh, so I was still, I think, was one year um, in my independent career, and it was just really um, being aware of the opportunities. So um, we were really focusing on what my training was, which was really blood, right? The pluripotent stem cells in general, but of course we can go so many directions, right? But what are the directions that you really have devoted your last your your years of training but i was um, it was really a, an interaction with a family uh, when we were in in dallas that wants to see research in the field of skeletal muscle and muscular dystrophies mm. and it was a uh, it was a meeting that really you know uh, changed my career i have to say because you know it was it was an opportunity i could have say now this is now this is not what i do right but uh, i decided that you would take risks if we if this uh, family was interested in providing funding to our research. And that was, a, a, you know, a, a very productive and success, successful interaction, I have to say. Hmm. Well, Rita, it's a, a testament, I think, to your courage, also your resolve. The courage in reinventing your career, one, um, but also the resolve. You had the funding, uh, you had a private source, and I'll tell the audience here, I'm sure they already know, that you've then gotten the R01 funding, you've gotten the federal funding from that. So it's not like you're sitting on your laurels with that big pile of money in your war chest. You've gone out there and kind of applied all these uh, concepts of the hematopoietic field in the muscle field and reinvented it, reinvented yourself. Uh, what, what would you say in, t in terms of like therapeutic application, w what is 
the closest thing? Well, I'll start with the, with the first question is, are, are you surprised, because it's however many years ago, that uh, you were in the Daily Lab? And I think you, like others at that time, myself included, in my training, was thinking that, you know, hematopoietic cells, there's a great precedent there therapeutically, clinically, they're in practice, the adult equivalents. It should be relatively straightforward to get a hematopoietic stem cell to engraft, and it's going to revolutionize medicine. I think the engine of stem cells was very much the, the idea of hematopoiesis and how broadly right. that could affect the field. Are you, are you surprised uh, or, I mean, vindicated? How do you <laughs> feel about the fact that, that, that I guess no one has really been able to get a bona fide hematopoietic stem cell? Um, in a straightforward way from pluripotent stem cells? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To be honest, I'm not uh, really surprised <laughs> uh, because, you know, it was the, the hard thing to do in my postdoc. Uh, but yeah, you would imagine that after 20 years, it has been about 20 years that I joined George's lab, um, that we would have been able to find uh, an efficient way to do that, right? And in a more, in a, in a way that would be able to translate. Um, but we know science takes a long time. So in a way, I would expect that we would have advanced more. I think, you know, during the last 20 years, I think, uh, you know, although I'm not in that field, I, I feel that um, many lessons have been learned, uh, but we are just not yet there in the translational aspect or using pluripotent stem cell, uh, hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells in the therapy. Hmm. So if you had to venture a guess, I'm putting you on the spot here, which do you think is going to go into the clinic first, muscle or blood? Muscle, no question. <laughs> bias, right? <laughs> well, on that note, you know, there's this idea of... Uh, of course, you only ever think about like disease, uh, I think, like most, but yeah. most, I think, of the lay audience, uh, not of this show, but general for stem cells, they're thinking about just what can it do for me, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and some of that maybe in, in the case of uh, muscle, maybe like cosmetic and, hey, I don't know, what if I wanted to beef up? Hey, maybe I'm asking for a friend, Rita. I'm asking for mm -hmm. a friend. Is there a possibility okay. of applying muscle stem cells in like a cosmetic way? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't, <laughs> just to be honest. <laughs> not that the aging is not affecting me, but you know, I always see, you know, though there is a, a amazing um, um, potential, you know, is not something trivial, right? Um, cells is a living uh, material that you're putting in and you have to think about rejection you have um, and there are just so many aspects you know it's a transplantation right, right. Um, so I would and you know I have been asked even in sports medicine and and my question why would you do that hmm. you know uh, I see that the cost benefit you know the risk benefit that justifies a procedure that will be um, invasive Right, um, and unknown because whenever that happens, it's going to be you know a lot of uh, unknowns and testing, you know, trial and error. Hopefully, not too much, not more. Um, you know, we'll target the right thing than, than errors, but it's still, you know, it's not something trivial. So I would think that the only um, justification 
to go with such a strategy would really be for muscle wasting diseases when you don't really have another option. Hmm. For now, for cosmetics, you just go get a good cream <laughs> or Botox in the worst yeah, case scenario. Get in the gym, right? I'll, t- I'll tell my friend to go, go to the gym. How about that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Do a few yeah. sit-ups, go to the gym. You know, the, the body knows they, they will respond. Your satellites will respond. <laughs> yes, they should. I don't know. My satellites are they're, they're angry at me. They're bitter. A lifetime <laughs> disuse. Um, so, yeah, a note of caution from Rita. Anyone out there who's thinking for cosmetics, you know, this is disease, guys. You know, if you can use your muscles, get out there and use them. Um, to end, uh, Rita, we're going to go into just a little bit of uh, into your personal scientific life, if you don't mind. Just a couple mm-hmm. questions. Um, what non-science book are you reading or have read that uh, is awesome and that you would recommend? Mm-hmm. Well, I love to read romances, but it has been a while. Um, I like to totally take my mind off. Um, uh, I would say, I don't know if you consider this science, but one book that I read a couple of summers ago, it was The King of Hearts. Um, it was the, a biography of, um, of Walt Lillehei. Mm. And it was, you know, I had it in my side uh, table for a long time because, you know, I don't really want to think about surgeries at night. <laughs> but, you know, eventually, you know, it's like, well, I shouldn't know, right? I, I profess in the name of the little house, like, I should read this. And, <laughs> and it amazed me because, you know, it's not, you know, you said no science. It's not really, you know, the details of the science per se or the surgeries, but really, you know, what this... Um, these doctors uh, went through to try to break certain barriers. Certain things were crazy. You wouldn't think they were doing, you mm. know? It would definitely not happen today. Um, but, you know, they actually end up actually getting it right and having the first open heart surgery here at the University of Minnesota. And, you know, and, and also putting the perspective of um, the competition, let's say, or different investigators doing at different times and how people learn from each other and the university, the the politics, and you know, it was a it was very interesting book. I have to say, it um, I thought it was um, very entertaining. I love I personally I love those books because they make science. You know, science when you're in it seems so dry, and from the outside too, it seems so dry. Mm-hmm. So it's always nice when you read something that makes science seem like our scientists, doctors makes them seem like uh, rock stars. And, and I think the truth is, is that we're living in an era now where there's this resurgence of science and scientists are being appreciated more uh, now than ever. So, I mean, hey, I'll read the, the Perlingero, the, the, the queen of muscle. <laughs> and it appears I'll, I'll read that with great, um, with great glee. Uh, but yeah, get out there, guys. Another book that's going to make you feel cool for a change. Um, next question. We got a couple of uh, fill in the blanks for you here. First one is, uh, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without taking risks, I would say. And that goes uh, back to that discussion we had about uh, taking opportunities. And I think, uh, I think it's a combination of being aware of opportunities. As I said, you know, I was, you know, um, some no federal fundings, you know, private fundings. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't see it 
you know, you don't think it would happen. So I think taking advantage of that interaction, having your eyes open and actually using that uh, wisely. So, you know, it, it's, as we discussed, it was, it was a risk, um, but sometimes you have to take risks. So I think you have um, to do that sometimes. And I think that for me, at least, you know, uh, it was a career change. Yeah, well, I think the difference between a visionary and uh, uh, I wouldn't say a underachiever, but a non-visionary is that they see what most would, wouldn't even recognize, but you saw it as an opportunity. I wouldn't even say you saw it as a risk, maybe because you were mm -hmm. young and naive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what do I have to lose, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Never have gotten there without taking risks and being naive. All right, last fill in the blank. Um, and I recommend being naive, by the way, as long as you can, uh, yeah. as long as you can, right? Last one, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it is? Would they be cheating if I say the people? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how many of them you can carry. A ten? thing. I mean, the lab is nothing without the people. I nothing without them, right? So, I mean, they are the ones doing this amazing science. So, uh, you know, um, you can think of getting vials of IPEX-7, hmm. human IPEX-7 IPSLs, but guess what? We can always make them again, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we can always start from scratch, but the people are uh, irreplaceable. By the way, that that's the correct answer, just so you know. But uh, usually the other scientists... Good, I got one right! <laughs> <laughs> other people I've asked, they usually leave that to the firemen. But I, I the fire people, I, I think that uh, I wouldn't take it for granted. And I'm glad to hear that someone has finally got the correct answer. Kudos. Uh, Dr. Prelingero, thanks for uh, this chat. This was uh, really a lot of fun, and um, we'll look forward to seeing what kind of work you and your people are, are going to be doing so in much. the future. Thank you so much. It was fun talking to you. Of course. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our show. That was a great talk with Dr. Rita Perlingero, telling us all the ins and outs of muscles, stem cells, also giving us a little insight into what it's like to work professionally with your life partner. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes for this episode, including a summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers, okay? You can reach out to us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com, giving us feedback or to suggest some guests, okay? Great show. We're going to see you guys in a couple weeks. Spring is in the air. We're living it up over here. Hope you're having a good time over wherever you are. Happy stem cells. <laughs>